getting into today. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew 26. Um, like I said, we don't have uh, worship, but as far as music, but I'm actually excited as we get to take kind of an extended period of time. Not that I get to, um, not that I get to talk longer. That's not why I'm excited. But it's just a, a time to really focus on what the Lord's Supper is, what communion actually is, why we do it, what's the significance of it. And, and we see in, um, basically, we're going to find how this works out through our lives. And um, really, the, Christmas, the Christian life is, is talking about living. We're supposed to be going forward, supposed to be moving forward on mission, if you will. And so how does the Lord's Supper propel us in that? How does it keep us going? And, and we say that we remember that Christ's sacrifice is at the center of our lives, and that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's remembering his sacrifice. It's remembering his body. So if you are in Matthew 26, um, I'm going to read starting in verse 26. So Matthew 26, 26, we'll, we'll read, uh, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, a little context, this is um, right before he is arrested. So it's toward the end of his earthly ministry. He's with his disciples. He's upper room. And then he says, in verse 26, Matthew gives his account. and says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then 29 says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. If, if y'all will pray with me, we're gonna ask the, the Spirit to guide us through uh, our time today. Father, we thank you that you have given just... That you've given us such a wonderful prize in your son, your only son, that you've given him to us so that we might live. You gave him to die so that we would live. We thank you for that, God. And we just pray that now your spirit would, would empower us to worship, God, that your truth would, would be exposed to us, that you wouldn't hide your truth but reveal that truth to us through your word, and that we would be able to focus our hearts on this symbol of his sacrifice that we call Lord's Supper. And it's in his name we pray, amen. So as, as, we're, as we're going into this, there's a, there's a lot of background, we, but a lot of times we, we typically downplay the spiritual significance of the Lord's Supper. We, we forget to, to really focus on the spiritual aspect of it. Instead, we just kind of lump it in as a schedule. In most churches, it's a a monthly thing, and then after a while, it just gets routine. That's what we do every month or every quarter, some every week. And it, it's just this, this time that, that so many times we downplay the significance of it because it's so readily available. So, so that's why I'm excited about this time with Watershed. It's the first time we've done this. So we kind of get to set the significance of it and remind ourselves of why we do this because there's so many different experiences. If you look across the, the Christian realm, there, there's so many words, you know, you have the Lord's Supper, you have communion, you can, this is mass, the, the Eucharist is all this same thing. And a lot of times all those experiences bog us down. Instead of 
looking at what it is, we, we have all these experiences that, that make up what we've had, and so it bogs us down. It gets us thinking about the differences instead of the spiritual significance. So today, what, what we want to do is understand that, that it symbols Christ's sacrifice. It is the center of everything we are. And, and then basically understand why it's critical as a church to understand that. Why do we do this? What, where have we been throughout history that leads us now to this? And, and so understanding that this, the Lord's Supper is one of the two sacraments the church has. Sacrament basically meaning it's just something that is an outward symbol of a visual, of an inward thing. So when we say sacrament, that's what we're talking. It's, it's a sacrament because it's an outward symbol of the internal thing that happened. And, and there's two of those, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Next week we'll be talking baptism leading up to the baptism service and the celebration that that is. And then this week with the Lord's Supper. So the, the, the first thing that, that we have to talk about is, is, is why, why do we do it? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? And we, and we just read part of the reason why in Matthew 26. We, we, we find this story in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all pretty much the same. They're considered the synoptic gospels. They're basically the same stories interchanged. There's a few differences. The wording's not always the same. But so we, when we look at this, it's Jesus starting this. That's why we do it. Why do, why do we do the Lord's Supper? Because Jesus told us to do it. He modeled what we're supposed to do. We read the Matthew one, and Mark's is almost the same. Mark says, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing, he broke and gave it to them, saying, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, this is my body of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink the new kingdom of God. That's in Mark 14. And so you can see that's very similar to the Matthew one. Just a few words differences. So we have this picture of Jesus taking the bread. They're already eating. This is already at a meal. That's, that's, that's something we can't forget. That they were up, they were eating. This was a, a fellowship time. It, it was a meal. It wasn't this random, hey, come up here, I'm going to break this bread. It was part of the meal, and he just took it aside and changed the meaning of it. Luke, we get a little different. We need to talk about Luke just for a second. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn, or you can. It's Luke 22 if you want to turn just a couple pages over. Luke 22, 17, he says, And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. So there's a little different. He's telling them to divide it amongst themselves. For I tell you that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God. And then he took the bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you do this in remembrance of me and and we see actually in Luke's thing he mentions the cup twice and so a lot of people have a problem with that is Jesus separates the he gives them and divides the cup then he does the bread and he comes back to the cup and so people are saying so what happened there what what I would say is that Luke it's the same thing happening it's not that they didn't do it twice all three men that wrote these are in the room have a different account, but it's the same thing happening. We don't need to get bogged down in, well, did he give them the cup twice? Well, not according 
to Matthew and Mark. And so can we say that, that Luke saw things a little different, but they still did in the same order. And that's what we have to do sometimes with the scripture. It's not us changing the meaning. It's looking at the same story through three different viewpoints and seeing which one is accurate. And they all have the same elements. They all have the same wording and it's to what Jesus actually says. This is my body. This is the blood of, my, of the covenant. This is my blood. And so we, we take notice, why do we do it? Because Jesus told us to do it. It's very simple that way. Now that's the first thing we need to remember. When we focus anything on the Lord's Supper, we need to see that it was Jesus that told us to do it. He took time right before he's going to be betrayed. This is the same meal where he calls out Peter saying, you're going to deny me, where he says Judas is going to betray me and tells him to do what he's supposed to do. This is the same meal. And so he takes a moment and says, this is my body. It's like his last lesson that he's teaching them. And he gives us this object. So one of his final acts of his earthly ministry is to give us this way to remember what he was about to do. What he was about to do. And then if, if we go further into the Lord's Supper and, and being commanded to do it, Paul in 1 Corinthians actually speaks of this too. In, fall, in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the reason I, I talk about Paul right there is because he emphasizes, emphasizes the remembrance of me. Matthew Mark and Luke all have this. They, they just say it. There's not really the remembrance. And Paul brings that out that Jesus said, this is a remembrance of me. So why do we do it? Because Jesus told us to do it and because it's a reminding us of what he did. So we do it out of remembrance of him. This is our way of focusing our minds and our hearts at this moment remembering what Christ did for us. What did he do for us? So we do it to remember him. It's not just a random thing created by people that came after this. This was instituted by himself. Jesus Christ himself said, this is how you do it. This is what you do. Do it in remembrance of me. Remember me when you do this. It's a visual thing. And, and even in John 6, we don't have the same story in John. John's a little different of the Gospels. You have the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all pretty much the same. Then John, John's kind of different. And the reason he's different, his, his goal is, is to tell how Christ was God. So when you read John, everything's about Jesus being God. But in John 6, Jesus tells, tells us that he's the bread of life. And who comes to him will not be hungry. And we still see that in Jesus' mind, he's the bread of life. He's what satisfies us. When we come to him, we'll hunger no more. He's not talking physical hunger here. He's talking a spiritual hunger. In him, we're satisfied. And so in a meal, when we see this, this bread, it's a sense of we're, we're satisfying our hunger physically, but it's also a spiritual thing at the same time. And so all four Gospels point to Jesus talking about he's the bread of life. And if we eat of him, we won't go hungry. And so it's important to remember, why do we do it? Because he told us to. 
It's an, it's an act of obedience. To ignore this is, is to not look at the sacrifice that he gave us. But it's a, 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 not just a physical act, it's a spiritual act. We do this to remember what he did for us spiritually. He died for us. And then, but when we look at this and we, we see, okay, now why do we do it? Because he told us to. It's, it's simple. That's, that's easy for me to say. Why do we do it? He told us to. And it doesn't really matter. Okay, the, the, what, where it gets crazy, and it, do, it does this with most doctrines and most beliefs in the church, there's thousands of years of arguments and ideas that this is wrong, this is right, and this is how we do it and all that. So when we look at something as important as the Lord's Supper, it's, it's critical to understand where the church has been. One thing that, that we need to be careful of doing is to feel that we've come further than the church behind us and that we know better than they did. I think a lot of times in our culture today, we define, not just American culture, just world cultures, we've achieved so much, we think we're the pinnacle of everything. And, and it's, we, we shouldn't and we mustn't apply that to church. And so we need to look at the church fathers. What has happened there's a ton of church history where people have set these things up and, and, yes, have argued and, yes, have misused it. But we need to look at what it is and pull the truth out and see what God has given us in that. And so I want to spend some time, if you will. It's almost like a little history lesson, not really. But, but I want to I take us through. There, there's four main views of the Lord's Supper. There, there's four views. Most of them stem from the Reformation. And, and that's pretty much given now. Anything that happens in church now pretty much comes from the Reformation. Before that, there wasn't as many distinct separations. So I want to take some time, if you will, just talk about the different views. What do people say the Lord's Supper is? Why did they say it? What was their, this, the symbolism in what they said it was? And then talk about then what we believe as a church, as Watershed, where we align ourselves in those views, and then we'll get to, to have this time of taking the Lord's Supper, experiencing that as a family. So, historical views. So there's, there's four of them. <coughs> Excuse me. First one we'll talk about is the Roman Catholic, okay? Now, real quick before I get into the differences, because a lot of times we have a, a tendency to think difference is wrong. And we automatically assume that someone's different, so they're wrong. That's not what we're saying here. I'm not coming to say, oh, well, they're completely wrong. We don't even need to talk to them. That's not what we're saying. We're saying there's differences. Some of those we agree with, some of those we don't. But that's not meaning we're going to cast all these people aside because of this. It's just where do we align ourselves and where do we think true biblical teaching aligns within these. So just kind of a little disclaimer. Um, the, the first one, Roman Catholic, when, when they take the mass, when the priest elevates the bread, the, the, the biggest distinction in Roman Catholic, in, and at the time and now in the Reformation, this was one of the things that they disagreed with the Catholic Church on. When the priest lifts it up and says, this is my body, to them, uh, there's, a, there's a miracle that happens. The blood, the cup, and the bread is literally transformed into his body and his blood. 
okay? That it actually changes. The substance of the bread changes into his body. When the priest elevates it, that's why it's always a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, because the priest is the one that handles that. It's not for everyone. It's the priest's job to do that. So when they say, this is my body, literally the bread transforms. Okay, uh, Ludwig Ott is a, is a Catholic um, theologist, and, and the way he describes it is this. Christ becomes present in the sacrament of the altar by the transformation of the whole substance of the bread into his body and the whole substance of the wine into his blood. And then he says that this transformation is called transubstantiation. That's a big word. That's transformation. The bread and the wine. Remember, in Reformation times, it was literally wine. We don't always do that. There's still some people that say you have to. Literally changes into his body and his blood. There's a miracle within that. And because of that, they all go on to teach that the, the mass is a true and proper sacrifice. So what, they're, what they teach in this is that Literally, it's like the sacrifice again. It's his blood. It's his body. That's why they're very careful. In, in parts after the Reformation, they excluded lay people, just normal church people. You couldn't even touch the cup because if you spilt it, you were literally spilling Christ's blood. You couldn't do that. You had to be careful with it. Okay, and so that's what they believe. That's the, the first view is the, the kind of, it literally changed. It literally changes it's a, a miraculous thing. The bread becomes his body. The whole substance of the bread is changed into the whole substance of his body. Okay? And so then comes in the, the Protestants at this time, and their major objection to that was that, that they said that because it's completely changing into his body and his blood, that they're not recognizing the completeness of the sacrifice. They would say that they said then that the church then is not accepting the completeness of Jesus' sacrifice because it's a, if mass is a true and proper sacrifice, it's happening over and over again. And for them, that went counter to, to verses like Hebrews 9 where it says Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. And, and so when the reformers came in and they were not trying to separate the church, we need to remember that about the Reformation. When you get guys like Luther and then Calvin and some, they weren't trying to necessarily completely separate. They're trying to reform the church. Get it back to the true teaching. So they said that Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. That's what the writer of Hebrews 9 says. So it can't be the true and proper sacrifice because the true and proper sacrifice happened on the cross. And so they're saying, they're not, not, they're not saying that you need to throw them out because of that, but they need to change the, their focus of it. Hebrews 1 we, we, in Hebrews 1.3, we see Christ sitting down at the right hand of God. Sitting, it's a completion. If you're going to sit, that means the work's done. So if Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, how can he be present physically in the Lord's Supper? And see, so that's, that's the differences. That's where the Protestants would say that the Catholic Church missed that because they failed to recognize the completeness. Not that they're not honoring him, not that they're bringing Christ down, they're just not seeing the magnitude of the completeness. And you, if you go further, Jesus himself in John 19, what does he say? John 19, 30 says, it is finished. And so as you move forward, you see that there's a completion of that. So the Protestant reformers at that time said that 
they, they missed on that because it's happened. It's complete. We don't need to honor that sacrifice over and over again if it was because it's already happened. It's been completed. It's been completed. So, but if we, but if we stop there all of a sudden, if we didn't go further, it looks like, oh, well, all we just have is a Protestant versus Catholic and that's gonna go on forever. But that's not the case. That's why we look at every view. The, the next view we have is, is the Lutheran view. This is Martin Luther. Okay, he, he saw what the Catholic Church did. He didn't think it was completely right, but he wasn't ready to, to completely dismiss the physical presence of Christ. And so he disagreed with the Roman Catholic view of the bread transforming into the actual body and blood, but he still had a literal sense of when Christ says, this is my body, he took that literal. He still took it literal. Not as literal as the Catholic Church did, but he took it literal. So he didn't believe that it transformed, but he believed that it was within. And instead of, so if you, if you want to go the, the big word, Catholic is transubstantiation. Luther is consubstantiation. Okay, and basically the way they said is, he, to quote him, he says, Christ's physical body is present in, with, and under the bread. So, so basically saying that his physical body is linked with the bread so that it's literally in, with, and under. It doesn't change the substance, but it's included. Uh, an example of this has been used that it's like um, magnetism and magnets. They're not the same, but they're contained within one. Or a person's soul and their body. One's not transformed to the other, but they're both contained in the same thing. This is what Luther said of Christ's physical body within the Lord's Supper. This, it didn't change, it was contained. It didn't change, it was contained. But there were some Protestants that didn't agree with that. There's other reformers that said, wait a second. We get that you're not saying it's transformed, but to say that the physical presence of Christ is there does devastating effects to Christ's humanity. And, and the, what, what they said in this is that if Christ was fully human and fully God, okay, that his hum, human side, his physical presence was his human presence, can't be everywhere the Lord's Supper is taken. And so if it can be, if Christ's physical body is literally here in the bread, how can it be somewhere else? Because we can't be in two places at once. Omnipresence wasn't an attribute of Christ's humanity. It was an attribute of his divine, his divinity. So for Luther to say it's just still within it is still saying that it does devastating things to his humanity. And that's one of the biggest heresies that's happened and that's happened in the church is to say that he wasn't fully human. And so the other reformers of the time, particularly Calvin, said, no, because that, Venel said he's not human. If he can be present everywhere this is done, within the substance of the bread, as his physical body is in, with, and under the bread that's used, then he's not human. Because humanity can't be different places. And so we can't think that right now we're the only ones doing this. Somewhere in the world, there's someone else doing this. So how is he present everywhere? Well, if he is, then he's not human. And if he's not human, is he the true sacrifice for our sinful flesh? So you, you get that view, and that leads us into the next view. 
I know, sorry, it's a lot, but um, hopefully it's interesting to you. I hope I'm not the only nerd that thinks this is interesting. But, but, but it's cool to see that it's not just a Protestant Catholic thing. It's, it's important to understand that. A lot of times we, ha- we hold that distinction too hard. That, okay, Luther said, in, under, and within, the bread is Christ's physical body. The other reformers, Calvin, not just Calvin. A lot of times we say Calvin, we think he was the only one. There's other reformers along with him that said, he's not physically present, but there's a symbolic, there's a, there's a huge spiritual aspect to this. And so what he taught is that the believer is spiritually connected with Christ, that there's a, a spiritual connection with Christ when we do this and we remember his sacrifice because of the symbolic understanding giving, understanding given in the bread and wine. So what Calvin and the other reformers said is there's still a spiritual aspect to this. It's a very powerful thing. We're connected with Christ because of the remembrance of his sacrifice. Spiritually, we're connected with him. But there's a symbolic understanding also in the bread and wine. We see that understanding in the bread and the wine or in the bread and the juice. There's a, it's a spiritual aspect. Not downplaying that the Lutheran view and the Catholic view aren't spiritual. He's just saying it's not a physical presence of Christ. It's a spiritual presence. It's literally us going to him. The Puritan, English Puritan William Perkins, said, he described it this way. He said, in the supper, Christ's sacrifice is sacramentally present in the symbols and mentally present in the believing remembrance of the communicants. So what he's saying there, what Perkins is saying is that sacramentally, it's present in the symbols. We understand the sacrifice because we have the symbols. We have the bread. We have the, the juice. We have the blood and the body. That's, his sacrifice is seen in that. But there's also a mental aspect that comes with the faith in knowing that that's what he actually did. There's a believing remembrance, and that's how he's mentally present. It's a spiritual aspect. It's not a physical aspect. Okay? And then finally, the fourth view. Um, well, the most, if you Google it, the most prominent person you're going to find is a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. He was a Swiss theologian. He's really not thought of a lot within the Reformation, basically because he was one of the main reformers that his view actually didn't turn into a church. We have the Lutherans. We have a Calvinistic view. We don't have a Zwinglian church. So a lot of times he's forgot. But, but what he did, his view, and really uh, that, that held with the Anabaptists, and now we could say a lot of the Baptists that we would understand Baptists have this view, is they don't stress any real spiritual connection. It's a memorial. It's remembering. We do this to remember. Not that there's, and, and then they downplay the spiritual aspect of it completely. It's a, it's a picture. This is a picture of it. And that's what that he took. So he took Calvin and brought it down just a little further. Well, there's not really a spiritual thing. He's not completely changing the bread and wine as the Catholics. He's not within the bread and wine as Lutheran. There's really not a spiritual connection as Calvin and the other reformers said. It's merely a memory. And, and the people that disagree with that say, well, then you're stressing too little of it. That if it's simply a memory, do we have to do it to remember? Can this not be a mental thing? Can we just remember what he did? Why do we have to actually go through this? And so those, those are the four main views. A good summary is to say it like this. The Roman Catholic and Lutheran teaching have Christ coming down to us 
in a physical sense. While Calvin and the other reformers taught that the believers is spiritually connected with Christ, so we're going to him through the supper. And then Zwingli and the Baptist view would be that it's a mere memorial of the action with little to no spiritual emphasis. So that's a good historical broad view of what the Lord's Supper has been. What the Lord's Supper has been. So, where do we stand? You see all that as watershed, where, what are we gonna teach as a church? And, and, and where we're, in, we're gonna fall is, is very close to uh, the Calvin and, and Zwingli and right in, right in there. Um, a lot of the Puritans believe this way and one of those quotes say, we don't take too much, we don't take too little. I figure that's a pretty smart way to say it. Um, that was, some, I forgot who said that. I should have quoted him on it because I think he's smart. He's like 1600 something. But that's what we do. We don't, we don't want to downplay it so much that there's not a spiritual side to this. Because everything we should do as a church should have a spiritual connection, especially this. Jesus ordained that we do this. He instituted the Lord's Supper, so there's a spiritual connected to this. We, we see that even in, in Christ says that I'll be present with you where two or more are gathered. Is he physically present? No, he's spiritually present. It's his spirit, so we would say the same thing. A good summary of what we would say um, was made by uh, a Puritan, English Puritan again, sorry. I'm quoting a lot of Puritans, sorry. Uh, is Matthew Poole. He said, when he saith, when Christ saith, take and eat, he means no more than true believers should by the hand of their body take the bread and with their bodily mouths eat it. So he's saying, literally, when he says, take and eat, he means you physically take it and you eat it. It's a physical body action for us. And at the same time, by the hand and mouth of faith, receive and apply all the benefits of his blessed death and passion to their souls. So what he's saying is that, yes, there's a physical aspect. It's us literally grabbing the bread and eating taking the cup and drinking. But at the same time, we do that by faith. We, we take the bread and by faith acknowledge that this was his body broken for us. And this is his blood that was shed for us. And, and so I would say we would hold to that description and noting that there is a spiritual aspect to this. This isn't just a picture. There's a spiritual thing. We are connected to him in this. It's a spiritual connection. It's the, the spirit of Christ connecting us with him. And see, what that gives us a pretty picture is the last thing that, that Jesus said in Matthew 26, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until we're together. And so we're saying that there's a spiritual connect to this because we're not with him physically yet. When he said, I will drink of it again when we're together when we're together. So, but there, there's something to this that, that I think is, is important. I think is important and we, and we fail to ask a lot of times is why a meal, right? We, we think, okay, so what's the deal with the bread and wine? What, what was he doing there? And, and there's actually a cool symbol in this. If you look back in the garden of Adam and Eve and at the start of this more than a story series, we, we looked at the garden. We looked at Adam and Eve and, and talked about how they were what? They were in fellowship with God. 
They were to eat. They were to enjoy the garden. And so there's something, there's something in God that wants fellowship with us. And in the garden in Adam and Eve, before sin, there was that fellowship. There was that perfect, unhindered, unaffected fellowship by anything outside of it. But then sin entered the picture. And from that point, if we look at Scripture, we see God setting forth a plan conceived before the foundation of the world to bring us back into fellowship with him. Um, Wayne Grudem is a theologian, professor, and he has a book, um, a systematic theology book. And he says, with this same thought in mind, says, from Genesis to Revelation, then God's aim has been to bring his people into fellowship with himself. And one of the great joys of experiencing that fellowship is the fact that we can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord. Okay, if we think about it, any, anyone that, if you've had any church background, they always say, if you have food, everyone will come, right? I mean, that's, if you have food, people are going to be there, especially because it's free, right? If you have free food, even better. You know, if you have to buy a ticket, maybe not so much, but if there's food involved. And, but that's one of the joys is, is we're literally going to get to sit Enjoy fellowship with him in his presence. And continuing that thought, Grudem kind of lines out. Um, in Exodus 29, God tells Moses to bring the elders with him. What are they commanded to do? They beheld God and they ate and drank. So they drank in the presence. This is Exodus. This is past sins has entered. He's given them the Ten Commandments. He tells them to eat and drink. In Deuteronomy 14, they're, they're told to bring their tithe of grain. And they eat it before the Lord. So it's bring your tithe of grain to me, but then fellowship and eat in my presence. And then probably one of the, the best picture of something to come in Revelation 19, we see the angel says, write it down. And it says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And see, that's what's to come. It's because those are who are in Christ are invited to that, what? Supper. It's a meal. It's a feast because it's fellowship within him. So in the observance of the Lord's Supper, we have a reminder that what Christ did for us in his sacrifice, his body was broken, his blood was shed, but we also have a vision of what's gonna happen eventually is we're gonna eat in fellowship in his presence. And see, when I was a kid growing up and grew up in a, in a church, and so I knew a lot of the answers because I just absorbed them over time here, and, and I always thought that we had the raw end of the deal. I always thought the Old Testament people had it better. Why? Because they had a visual of God. And I don't know if that's a, a kid in me or if that's just me, but I always thought, and they had it better because they had a visual representation. They followed the cloud in the Exodus. They had all these visual signs. And I thought we got the raw end of that deal. But, but if you think about it, one, we have it better because we have the Spirit within us. It's not an external thing. Now it's an internal change. But we do have a picture because we have the Lord's Supper. So he made a point to remind us of that. And, and so what we have to do is we have to prepare ourselves in order to not see this as merely bread and juice, but as literally Christ's body and blood. Not that it's physically here, but that that's the view we get. That's the view we get. And so that's when we can understand what it means. So what does it mean when we do this? What is it pointing to? John Owen said that in the supper we see 
We see this is a visual picture of the gospel. We see Christ lifted up, and that results in two things. One's the mortification of our sin. And, and he said that, that when we see Christ lifted up, we see the death of sin in us because we see that we're sinful, but Christ on the cross is a picture of that sin being conquered. So it's the mortification of sin. It's the death of sin. That's what the book You Can Change is talking about that we wanted to give you. It's talking about that we are not slaves to sin anymore. It doesn't mean we're not sinful, but we're not slaves to it. Why? Because in the picture of the Lord's Supper, we see Christ lifted up, and we see that sin being conquered. And then by faith, we see Christ dying. That gives us strength. That gives us the strength. When we see Christ dying for us, that gives us the strength to see sin killed in our souls. But he said it also results in the vivification of faith. Because we, when we see that in this that God appointed Christ to die for us, we look at him and our faith is strengthened because of that. So not only do we see a picture of our sin being conquered, but we see a picture of our faith being strengthened. Why? Because while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what we see in the Lord's Supper. We, it's, a, it's a visual lesson of the gospel. When we take the bread and we take the juice, it's a visual representation of the gospel. Why? Because Christ's body was broken when it should have been ours. His blood was shed when the law demanded it was our blood. And it's because of that, when we understand that, that's why a lot of times people call the Lord's Supper, it's, it's a family meal. And what they mean by that is that, that the Lord's Supper is something that is supposed to be taken by those who are in the family. And really, in a, in a true evangelic church, the Lord's Supper and baptism with it are about the only closed door you'll find, should find. And what I mean by that closed door, it means that if someone hasn't put their faith in Christ, how can they take a meal that symbolizes the sacrifice that they haven't acknowledged yet? And that's not meaning that that they don't understand it necessarily, but it hasn't come to that. And so that's why we say closed door, because you would, you would ask someone outside of the family, not because it's a symbol. How can you spiritually be present in something that doesn't, that doesn't affect them already? If we haven't come to understand Christ as our Savior, how can we take a meal that points to that very fact. So that's why they say it's a family meal. That's why we would say it's a family meal. But there's some people that go as far as say, well, if you haven't been baptized, you shouldn't take it. And I don't agree with that. I think, some, I think yes, you should be baptized. I think baptized is a command just like the Lord's Supper is. should be baptized, but I don't think you should be baptized to participate in the Lord's Supper. If you know Jesus is your Savior, you understand that sacrifice, then yes, take and eat, because that's what he does. You're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a picture of it now. Yes, you should be baptized, but I don't think it should be that way. And that's why we're doing these out of order. I want to show that, that you can take the Lord's Supper and then be baptized. It doesn't mean you should neglect to be baptized. It doesn't, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, but if you know that in your heart that you are a sinner and Christ died for you, and yes, take and eat, because that's 
a way to remember that. That's a way to remember that is because we need that reminder. We need to look at Christ and say, yes, you died for me. And I understand that your body was broken, so I'm going to take this. I'm going to take it acknowledging that sacrifice, remembering that sacrifice. And for a lot of people, the Lord's Supper almost becomes a, a pre-thing for the baptism. It's almost like their initial welcome to the family. It's, and so that's what we want to do. We don't want to exclude people because of they haven't been baptized. We don't say, yes, be baptized. Absolutely do that. But if you haven't, then yeah, we want to invite you to that. Because it's a family meal, and, and baptism isn't necessary for salvation. It's a picture of it. So we can't exclude because of that. So, so how are we going to do this? How, how, how are we as watershed going to do it? The first thing I think you need time, you have to prepare yourselves. And, and most of you will understand some of this because you've been here before. And, and each week, what do we do? We do a couple of songs and what do we have? We have a time of confession. It's just acknowledging our sinfulness. And so here in a second, we're going we're gonna to have a time where it's going to be a time of prayer, just like we do the time of confession, but it's going to be purposeful. Then first, we're going we're gonna to meditate um, on, on sin, what, how horrible it actually is, that that sinful nature in us is that way. We have to be honest about ourselves before we can be honest about who Christ is, because if we're not that sinful, is he really that great? And so we'll have that time, and just, just to meditate, just to prepare on, on a passage like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short. And understand that I have fallen short. I have sinned. I continue to sin. There's times where the sin overcomes my physical strength. So I'll have that time. But then also we're going to transition that time into a focus on God's holiness and his glory. I love how John Owen describes this. He described it as God's purity and holiness as that holiness that wouldn't pass by sin even when it was charged to his son. And when we think of it that way, that's such a picture of God's holiness that he didn't even pass over sin when it was his son. And, and we think about what a good parent that is to have that doesn't exclude their children because of something, doesn't change who he is because of that. And so we'll focus on his holiness, his glory in that. We'll see him lifted up. We've talked about the gospel grid before and how we should see our sin and his holiness. And what bridges that? That's Christ. That's why we do the Lord's Supper. 